A special thanks to Noah for sponsoring this podcast episode. Use code BAGEL for a 7-day free trial, plus 37% off the annual subscription fee, and start listening to business articles from the world's leading publishers today. In general, investing in revolutionary technology is a really bad idea. Mm. You tend to get really, really poor returns. So many research reports are just the repeat of old research reports in new timeframes. And yet it's so difficult to draw conclusions <laughs> about, about what you're actually yep. seeing in the space. You gotta remember market efficiency is a model. It's mm -hmm. kind of like what you're just saying. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a model, it's not, it's not reality, or we wouldn't call it a model. Um, and stuff, weird, weird stuff is gonna happen. When you go down to the investor level, it's actually worse performance than the active mutual funds. The whole story of gold as the original money, uh, mm -hmm. or true money, or hard money, or whatever you wanna call it, is objectively wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plain Podcast. We are back with another in-person interview, uh, this time with another fellow Canadian. I'm taking full advantage of my Ottawa-based setup to have on another uh, well-known investment uh, YouTuber within the Ottawa area, Mr. Ben Felix. Uh, ben Felix hosts the Common Sense Investing YouTube channel, uh, now just kind of called Ben Felix. I'm not sure what the branding is on yeah, that. I don't know what's both, going on Both, a bit of both, either. yeah. Um, a, but also works as a portfolio manager, so uh, works as a professional in the industry, has all the letters <laughs> after his name, MBA, CFA, CFP, and CIM, um, and he is the head of research uh, for Wealth Manager here in Ottawa. You also have your Rational Reminder podcast, which is kind of the podcast extension of, of what you cover on your channel. Um, and for those who haven't stumbled upon your YouTube channel, um, it's a lot of research. <laughs> it, like uh, one thing I, I like about your content is uh, all of your videos kind of throw in like <laughs> at least a handful of research papers talking about uh, what academics and what researchers have found about different investment strategies, about markets over different time periods. And so it makes for a really informed conversation about different topics. You know, you can talk about the theoretical as much as you'd like, but having the numbers there makes for a really interesting conversation. Um, and for those sharp-eyed viewers uh, who have been with us for a while, you might know that this is our second collaboration, if you will. We did one way back when. Back way when, back. Back yeah. when we were both kind of smaller channels yeah. on the Grossman-Stiglitz paradox, which yep. uh, talks about kind of the uh, the relationship or the tug of war, if you will, between active and passive management, uh, which Ben Felix yourself, kind of an advocate of passive management and sort of that application of stuff. Um, so Ben, <laughs> lengthy introduction, but thank you for hopping on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Great to be here, Richard. Uh, first question, we'll just hop right into it. How tall are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm six foot 11. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Look, I'm a, I'm a tall dude myself. I'm six foot two and you tower over me. It's, it's <sighs> actually nuts. Uh, have you ever like played basketball? In yeah, yeah I, I played NCAA Division One basketball. No kidding, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow, that's huge. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, yeah it's. Uh, I remember the first time because we met up for coffee when we were uh, when we both realized we were in Ottawa, and it was funny. I was like, oh wow, <laughs> a lot because you only ever see you from the shoulders yeah. up, kind of. So, um, in terms of uh, what we'll cover today, I want to keep it very broad uh, and talking about. Uh, you know, a bit about active and passive management and the relationship there, uh, because you, you talk about that a, a good amount on your channel. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk a bit about the current market and stuff like that. Uh, but to start off, uh, I figured we'd begin, I actually just recently had my coworker on, um, and we obviously apply a different approach. So I figured you also work as a portfolio manager. Could you explain a bit about uh, what you do as a portfolio manager, uh, also head of research, what that entails? and how your investment strategy might differ uh, from other portfolio managers. Like what, is, what strategy you apply with your own investing and what you do for clients? Oh man, there are three questions in there. Uh, yes, so, <laughs> I don't make it easy here. What a, <laughs> Super unorganized. Uh, as a portfolio manager, the, I, I spend most of my time giving clients advice on asset allocation, uh, which I think is pretty typical of many portfolio managers. Maybe the big difference between what I do and what a portfolio manager who is actively managing a portfolio does uh, is that we're making fewer discretionary decisions on individual securities. So my client conversations are much more about their individual financial situation, uh, their financial plan, and how their portfolio interacts with it, as opposed to, and not to say that an active manager isn't talking about that, um, but our focus is on that as opposed to on portfolio construction which we consider, and I say this somewhat jokingly, to be a solved problem. Uh, we kind of know 
what a good portfolio looks like, and we can implement that systematically, which is part of our belief system. Uh, so that's me as a portfolio manager. Uh, me as a head of research. Uh, so you mentioned I talk about a lot of research on my YouTube channel, mm -hmm. which I definitely do. Uh, I spend most of my research time reading I the academic literature. Um, there are some top journals in finance and financial economics that I subscribe to. And likewise, there are practitioner journals for portfolio management and financial planning. Spent a lot of time reading that research and figuring out how we can take insights from academia and from peer-reviewed journals and apply that to help our clients make better decisions. Mm -hmm. So that's me as head of research. And then I guess an extension of that is we have a fairly large team of financial planners and other portfolio managers. So a lot of my time is spent training them on the research that we've done so that they can have better conversations with our clients. Right. And what would have prompted you to... Uh to start the YouTube channel because obviously it seems like an extension of, uh, and I kind of found this too, the nice thing about working in the industry and having YouTube channels <laughs> kind of just translates over where you cover something for your work. In your case, if you're quite literally doing research for your day job, it makes it easy to have research for videos. Uh, but what was the push that made you want to start posting videos on YouTube? I used to have a blog. Oh, okay. When uh, blogging was, I guess it's still a thing, but I don't know. It was, it was a cool. bit less. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, it's it's kind of all migrated to central platforms as opposed to everyone having their own blog. Yeah, there are still some out there. I know there are some good ones. Yeah, a lot of it's shifted to what's the new thing called Substack now. Yeah, Substack. Yeah, yeah, I've seen a few on there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I had a blog. Uh, I started writing about investing and financial decision making. Geez, almost ten years ago now. Uh, okay. When I started working in this field, I was doing my MBA at the time. And I just found that it was a good way for me to learn and solidify ideas, uh, communicate. And that ended up being somewhat related to me getting my current job. Uh, when I applied, they Google searched me and found my blog. And that was a contribution to their decision to, to hire me. So when I continued writing that blog, started writing for my employer's blog as well. And then at some point, uh, we were given the suggestion that, hey, video is going to be a thing, uh, right. a big, a big thing. <laughs> it's going to be big. <laughs> you should do it. Yeah. So, uh, we as a firm actually decided that, uh, we would support people that wanted to create video content mm. and I just kind of put my hand up and started doing it and that's, that's it. Gotcha. Yeah. And it's going strong today. A quarter of a million subscribers roughly and growing. So yeah, it's going okay. I don't post as much as I'd like to on the CSI channel. I put a lot of effort into the rational minder podcast, mm. which, um, I, pro I probably learn more from the podcast because the, the focus on that content is finding the best researchers in finance and financial planning and, and related fields. Likewise, uh, happiness and well-being and all that kind of stuff and inter interviewing those experts on, mm -hmm. on the podcast. So that in terms of doing research, that podcast is much more closely related um, mm -hmm. because I'm talking directly to the primary right. researchers. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I, I learn a ton, which is yeah. which is beneficial for me. Well, yeah, I was going to say like that's the thing about a podcast, right? Is is it's a two person team, right? Where you go in, you you prepare stuff, but you also have someone else working with you and possibly sharing new insights that you weren't familiar with. But um, and I would say your uh, your attention to research definitely shows. Uh, ben is the only one who's showed up with uh, with notes <laughs> for my podcast, so uh, definitely the professionalism shows through in everything you do. Um, so on kind of the note of of research reports. Uh, could you talk a bit about, um, obviously you're, you're kind of reviewing a lot of research reports. Do you find that, um, out of the stuff you read, like a lot of it comes to the same conclusions or is there anything that's kind of stood out to you over time? Uh, do you have like a handful of research reports that really resonated with you, um, through kind of your, your studies of what's been coming out of these journals? Mm. So that there are definitely a few things that have been pretty impactful to the way that I think about financial markets and, and communicate with clients. One of the big ones, which I found really mind blowing at the time, uh, is the, the general concept that economic growth and stock returns are at best unrelated and more likely negatively related. Hmm. So that, I mean, it's, it's really interesting stuff uh, in terms of the actual papers. What, one of the big ones is a 2003 paper that was in the um, Financial Analyst Journal called earnings growth to 2% dilution. Uh, and they basically make the case, well, they, they show that economic growth and stock returns have not been related. 
and then make the case that the reason is what really matters to investors is growth in earnings per share, mm. which of course you hearing that yeah. make it makes sense. Makes that's, sense, yeah, yeah. That, that's what it is. <laughs> Uh, but in a, in a fast-growing economy or sector, the new issuance of shares ends up diluting the growth in earnings per share relative mm. to the actual economic growth of the sector or country or whatever. Hmm. Uh, so that, that, that was a, a big learning. Interesting, yeah. So you're saying basically that the growth doesn't actually compensate for the inflow of, of money into these areas. Correct. It's like if there were one single company in a fast-growing sector and they never issued new equity and no other competitors ever came in, you would capture all of the economic growth right. in earnings per share growth. Mm. But the reality is the growing company is going to raise equity capital. Uh, they're going to have competitors come into the industry or, mm. or the sector or whatever, and that's going to dilute growth in earnings per share relative to economic growth. So right. you can look at a, a potentially big sector and it can be like, yeah, if, if there were one company, that would be a good investment. Right. Um, but there's going to be competition and they're going to need to raise capital. And right. so you're not going to actually get the economic growth. That's interesting because I, I think um, like to bring it and again, you know, I, I do work on the active side. Um, but when you bring it to kind of the, the phases of a company, if you will, uh, you can see that a lot with, with companies as well. Mind you, it's really exaggerated or, or most obvious during. Uh, when you have economic booms and busts, for example, like the, the dot-com bubble obviously sticks to mind as an example of, of where you have this really high growth area, uh, the internet, you know, obviously very promising, uh, but a lot of companies just attracting as much investor capital as, as possible and really no earnings to, to back up what they were uh, selling to these investors. Obviously, some companies did really well, um, but I it's it's I didn't know that. That's interesting too. And, and uh I guess my, my follow-up to that would be, how does that relate to, um, or, or you as an investor, how does that tie to your view of developing markets and things like that? Because obviously, you know, if you were to take a very uh, high-level, broad view of what people tend to view the markets, it's generally that developing markets, because they're growing, have more opportunity, higher risk, higher return. Uh, do you think that kind of proves that wrong or, or negates that? Or is it just there, there's something more... Um, nuanced there. Uh, develop, developing being like emerging markets. Emerging markets, sorry, yes. Yeah. So that, there's there's another paper. Uh, that when you asked me this question, I had I had two papers in mind. One was the the earnings dilution paper that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one is a paper uh, called "Is Economic Growth Good for Investors?" And they look at exactly that. They look at right. what has been the historical cross-sectional correlation between GDP growth and stock returns, and they look at both developing and emerging markets, and they find the correlation is negative. No kidding. Yeah, so that's interesting. It's 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 not intuitive, I think, and that's right, why when yeah. I when I learned this, uh, and then there's a whole field of research on this. There's tons and tons of papers. So a lot of them look at the at the dot com uh, situation that you brought up. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's been super impactful for me. Yeah, and I will say, like, obviously, with research reports, um, it's obviously important not to, you know. Saying that there's this relationship that we've seen historically doesn't mean that it's a uh, causal relationship. Like just because an economy is growing doesn't mean that stocks are going to do poorly. Uh, but that that's definitely an interesting relationship that uh, obviously makes things a bit more complicated when you consider like how to uh, address that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so kind of uh, we touched we touched on it a little bit, um, and I'd actually be interested to to go back to uh, what you're talking about with asset allocation in a bit. Uh, but before that. Um, we've kind of thrown out the words active and passive, uh, pa passively <laughs> in our conversation. Um, most people have a general understanding of, of what those terms mean. Uh, but given, uh, well, could you maybe explain again to people who uh, might not be as familiar? Uh, I guess we'll start with the efficient market hypothesis because that's kind of the core of it really when uh, you get into uh, deciding between those two approaches. So how would you describe efficient market hypothesis and, and how that relates to active and passive management? So market efficiency is just the idea that the all available current information is reflected in prices. That's it. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty simple idea. Right. Uh, if that's true, we can use the information in prices to make decisions about asset allocation and which stocks you might want to own or, or not own. Mm -hmm. If the market's not efficient, uh, you as the investor can bring information that is not currently in the price to the market and earn a profit for a pretty low risk mm -hmm. uh, because you're the one bringing the information there. Now, 
on the other side of that, if the market is efficient, the only way to earn higher returns is by taking more risk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how you measure risk is a whole other is a whole other question. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's also important that in an efficient market, prices aren't necessarily always right. In the theory, that's it's pretty explicit in the, in the theory. Mm -hmm. um, there, the big the big takeaway there is that the it, when there are incorrect aspects to a price, they occur randomly. Mm. And there's there's no pattern there. So there there are pricing errors. There can be pricing errors where a stock differs from its intrinsic value, uh, mm -hmm. whatever that is. Um, but those errors are random, so they right. can't be systematically exploited. Right. Um, now, if that's true, if there, if there are not pricing errors that can be systematically exploited, then trying to do that, trying to systematically exploit errors, <laughs> is a, is a very difficult game to win. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it relates back to active versus passive investing. I don't love those terms. I think they've become very blurred mm. uh, over time. Mm -hmm. uh, like what what is what is passive investing? Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, I think in general terms, people are talking about owning a market capitalization weighted index mm -hmm. when they refer to passive. And I think that's that's probably as good a, of a definition fair, as we yeah, can get. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, active investing is deviating from the market cap weighted index. Mm -hmm for some reason uh, mm -hmm. that could be for taking more risk like i, I actually don't consider myself to be a, a passive investor because oh, okay. I, gotcha. I, I do tilt toward in my portfolio and, and likewise for our clients at pwl we do tilt toward higher expected returning returning stocks mm. um so that's kind of my point about what what exactly right is passive. yeah yeah that, and that's fair because i i think you put it in in a in a good way that uh, like I personally, I've always kind of viewed it as more of a, like a, a spectrum, if you will, or a scale, like you know, on one end you have extreme passive, if you will, which let's say is like owning a market cap weighted index fund that owns every stock that's ever existed. Right. And, and, and bonds too. I think that's the thing. Sure, with, yeah, that's like, a good point. What, what is a true passive yeah. <laughs> investor? You have to own the market portfolio. That's, that's yeah, that's a very good point. And, and then, you know, okay. Do you include real estate in there? Do you include alternatives or metals or whatever? Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, cryptos maybe who knows like <laughs> but but uh even if you just focus within stocks because obviously that opens a whole other can of worms uh if you just focus on stocks on the one end you would have like passive where you own let's say every stock that's ever existed probably something that will never exist or, or to some capacity um on the other side you have extreme active where let's say it's someone who's trading every market movement possible within their portfolio of stocks probably doesn't exist either, or at the very least, you know, isn't very common where you have someone trading every second in their portfolio. So most people obviously fall somewhere between those two extremes. And it's just whether you you go more in terms of index or, or say avoiding security selection um, versus, you know, maybe owning and timing and timing's a whole other thing too, right? Security selection, you could have its own scale, timing its own scale. So yeah, it's, it's, that's a good point. It's, it's really not that simple, is it? Like just defining even what those two terms mean. Yeah, I think another big one on on the to compare the two is portfolio concentration. In terms I'm, of like geography or? or... Anything. I think that with increasing contra, uh, concentration at any level, uh, I was thinking by, by number of names, but yeah. Geography, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Number of stocks. Yeah, I understand. Industry could make sense too. And any form of concentration is inherently an active bet. Right. Because you're carving out everything else in the theoretically optimal market portfolio. Right, right. Um, so we kind of touched on it. One question I had for you. So we talked about a, you know, market cap being more passive, if you will. Uh, so one question I've gone a few times and that I haven't always given a very good answer to, quite frankly, is uh, why is equally weighted not considered the passive approach? You know, if you say passive is just owning a bit of everything, why would you not uh, say equal weighted is, is the way to go? Why would market cap be considered more passive, if you will? So theoretically, if we take the position that the market is efficient, all assets have been priced and, and weighted uh, based on their mm. contribution to a theoretically mean variance optimal portfolio. Mm -hmm. If you take the capital asset pricing model perspective of, of, uh, of asset pricing. So that, that's why right. um, the, the, the largest, most liquid stocks are priced that way for a reason. Because of their most profitable or whatever, whatever it may be. Yeah. 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 Whatever the metric. Um, so deviating from that is saying, I disagree with market prices. But again, we're back to that question of what actually is passive. It, it would be hard for me to disagree that, uh, equal weighting is is not also passive. I, sure. I, I think it, it probably is a form of passive investing. Right. But what you end up doing there is if you look at just a regular market capitalization weighted portfolio, uh, by weight, 
most of the portfolio is going to be made up of large cap growth stocks mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. because they make up the largest portion of the market right. and, and much less is in small cap value stocks, which tend, which tend to be the smallest segment of the market. If we say we're going to equal weight by name, you're going to end up drastically underweighting large cap growth mm. and drastically overweighting small cap value. Right. Now, that's not necessarily a bad portfolio. Um, I would probably rather intentionally design tilts toward size and value and stuff like that right. as opposed to naively doing it through equal weighting. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I think you probably end up with some liquidity issues with equal weighting too because you right. end up putting a significant weight in those smallest stocks. Right, yeah, and, and that's a good point too is um, you take any position with where you get into smaller, and say small cap or even micro cap, um, you actually get to a point where, especially for a portfolio manager who let's say is, is trading uh, million dollar trades for multiple clients, uh, you might actually have difficulty filling out a trade uh, if you're at a certain level. You know, if you buy a company that has less than a billion dollars of, of market cap, um, a $1 million trade, you need $1 million on the other side of that selling out of the company. So uh, that's a good point I, uh, to liquidity, touch on. Liquidity, but the other side of liquidity is, is that you may fill the order, but you may pay, they may be such spread. a, yeah, yeah, the a spread could eat any premium that you may have otherwise captured. Mm -hmm. and, and which makes it very expensive as well and, and almost kind of works against you if you think of uh, yep. you know the factors you're trying to deal with and the thing with the efficient market hypothesis is, is i think there's three kind of you know there's strong semi-strong and uh weak form if i'm correct yep uh and they argue for different levels of, of how efficient the market is and, and within that it's uh my understanding has always been that it's not that uh markets are perfect it, it's that uh there's no reliable consistent approach to exploit the imperfections, if you will. Um, on that note, we I, I think, especially over the last two years, we've seen some examples of that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, GameStop is the one that comes to mind as, as something that uh, you can say that they were short uh, selling arbitrage and stuff. And, and I think there's arguments for that, you know, the fact that this was an arbitrage trade early on. Um, my own view is I think that was a wild event that kind of, uh, again, it's, it doesn't really challenge the hypothesis because the hypothesis allows for errors, but it is to say that it's uh, impacted the efficiency of the market, in my opinion. Um, do you have that same view or do you think there's a, like, there's a justification for why GameStop, for example, was bid up to such a high level? Uh, or do you just see it as kind of like a, an anomaly that is hard to predict? I don't think it needs a justification. Like, I don't know if we need to say Fair, market, yeah. market efficiency <laughs> has changed because of that event. I, I agree. It's an We're here for the hard answers, man. <laughs> <laughs> We're here to decide the fate. <laughs> I uh, I had Eugene Fama on my podcast a while ago, and he's like the guy. No that, kidding. You yeah. had Eugene Fama. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'll have to go check that. Episode 200. Wow. No kidding. Uh, we asked him about this. Right. And, and he laughed, and he said, is that that thing that happened with the, with the technology stock? I don't know. I don't look at the data until three. three. <laughs> he said he looks at the data three years later. I thought that was pretty good. That's funny, yeah. Um, but he said it's an anomaly. He said you got to remember market efficiency is a model. It's mm -hmm. kind of like what you're just saying. Mm -hmm. It's it's a model. It's not it's not reality, or we wouldn't call it a model. Um, and stuff weird weird stuff is going to happen. Right. And this isn't the first time weird stuff has happened. Um, if you look back through market history, there have been other weird anomalies where prices shot up in maybe similar ish situations. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it tells us anything about market efficiency. If you go back to the actual tests of market efficiency, like do active managers outperform on average, if you look at the data, uh, that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that something like GameStop will change that type of data. Right. So uh, just to quickly uh, cover it, because uh, obviously uh, we're both familiar with Eugene Fama. Uh, the Fama French model, could you explain? I, I, we've actually covered it before, but uh, could you quickly cover uh, the FEMA French model. And, and uh, from what I know, it t actually ties very closely to your own investment strategy in terms of the factors you look at. So could you maybe talk a bit about uh, the FEMA French model and, and how you apply that to your investment strategy? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier the capital asset pricing model, uh, which is an asset pricing model that relates all risk back to market beta, mm -hmm. which is which is proportional to covariance with the market. So if a uh, if the market goes up 10% and a stock goes up 20%, and likewise on the downside, it's got a beta of two. Right, if it yeah. moves in lockstep with the market, it's got a beta of one. A multiplier, if you will. Yeah. 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 So the capital asset pricing model relates all, uh, assumes that all risk is that, is, is market beta. 
if that were true, any difference in returns between two diversified portfolios would be fully explained by exposure to market risk, by, right. by yeah. market beta. Now, we've known for a long time, since the 1970s or 80s, that that's not true, mm -hmm. that the CAPM does not explain differences in returns in some specific cases. Mm -hmm. So early on, low beta stocks, stocks that are less volatile in the market, they, they, they didn't have returns that were commensurate with their market risk. So right. that was an anomaly. And then likewise for small cap stocks, they had higher returns than their market betas would predict. Mm -hmm. Value stocks, same thing. Uh, so this is going on for a while. And it was interesting because a lot of literature at that time was saying, hey, look, markets are inefficient. Mm -hmm. Because if the capital asset pricing model is the truth, if that's how assets are priced, Anomalies. It's awfully wrong, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the model's wrong. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So with market efficiency and with asset pricing models, they're always tested jointly. Mm. And it's actually a problem because EMH, Efficient Markets Hypothesis, is still a, a hypothesis because it cannot be proven. Right. And it can't be proven because every test of market efficiency is jointly a test of market efficiency and the asset pricing model being used to test mm -hmm. market efficiency. Right. Good point, yeah. Yeah. And that's a, it's, a, it's a real... It's a real problem. Um, anyway, so people were saying back then, hey, markets are inefficient. Look, value stocks have higher returns than their CAPM predictions. And these guys, Eugene Fama, who have become uh, quite famous as researchers, at least in, in my finance bubble. Oh, uh, I, I think everyone, yeah, like any university student or whatever is going to hear about the Fama French model. So I think I think it's pretty well yeah. respected. And even even among active managers, like you've heard, we've heard of, <laughs> we know yeah. the factors and, and stuff like that, yeah. So these Fama and French guys, they, they basically said, maybe we just need a better asset pricing model. Mm -hmm. Maybe this single factor market model, the, the CAPM, maybe it's not the right model. So let's add, the, there's, there seem to be these other risks that are being priced into, into assets. Let's add those to the model mm -hmm. and, and see how uh, the explanatory power changes. And so they added a small cap uh, factor, mm -hmm. which is like a, a, a risk premium uh, associated with smaller companies. And a value factor, which again, risk premium associated with lower priced companies. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were measuring relative price by book relative to market, right, book, yeah. book value relative yeah. to market value or market price. And they found that this three factor model uh, explained a lot of the anomalies that were previously in the, in the data. Mm -hmm. And you kind of touched on it, uh, value, size, um, I'm missing the third one, uh, uh, market value and size. Those are the three factors. Right. They've got a five-factor model. Yeah. Now. now they so they've they've added factors over time, kind of repeating the 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 research. Profitability. Profitability and investment. And, right. So what's investment? What's the investment? Factor? Uh, how, how quickly the book value of assets is growing. Right. I see. I see. Um, and so, would you agree that that's kind of the the core that you base your own investment philosophy around? Is is that kind of model? Yep. Yeah, so I, I we we just did a podcast episode on this. Actually, it's it, there's so you mentioned Fama and French have added factor factor to their model. That is that is absolutely true. It took them a while to do it. They had mm -hmm. their 1993 three factor model. They had a 2015 uh, five factor model, and in 2018 they had a, a six factor model, which included momentum. That one's a bit uh, I don't know tenuous because. And I, from my understanding, it, it kind of changes or its influence has changed over time, if I'm not mistaken. Well, momentum doesn't have a very strong theoretical explanation on the efficient market side. Mm -hmm. If you believe markets are efficient, why does why, why does stocks why would with momentum, momentum exist? I understand. Yeah. So Fama and French, they say this in their paper. They reluctantly added it to the model right. <laughs> in, that, in that paper. Right. Uh, more recent research, actually, uh, there, there's a new method for comparing asset pricing models. It's the, the maximum uh, squared sharp ratio. Uh, so there's this little body of literature that, that emerged comparing asset pricing models on that basis. Mm -hmm. And the most recent paper, at least the one that I'm aware of in that field of study, uh, includes transaction costs. Mm. So it's comparing all these asset pricing models, but they're including transaction costs. So Fama and French in 2018 had found that adding momentum uh, resulted in the best model of the set that they were comparing. Mm. But this more recent paper by again, a guy named Robert Novi Marks, uh, he adds transaction costs. Momentum has very high transaction costs because it's a high turnover strategy. Right, right. And when he added momentum, he found that uh, it, or when he added transaction costs, he found that momentum drops out from the uh, winning factor model. Hey guys, just a quick pause to once again thank our sponsor, Noah, who offers a really awesome service. And if you are liking this podcast, you might really like what they have to offer. 
Noah is an app that professionally narrates and curates playlists of business articles from the likes of Bloomberg, The Economist, and Harvard Business Review, not only letting you listen to thought-provoking pieces, but linking articles together on related subjects so that you get well-rounded coverage and multiple perspectives. In fact, they actually have a team of industry experts behind the service, and it really does show in the quality of their picks. So if you'd like to try them out, you can visit the link in the description or use coupon code BAGEL to get a 7-day free trial, plus 37% off the annual subscription fee. Thanks again, Noah. And now back to the episode. What, with the data that you, um, from these research reports, is it primarily mutual funds that are used? Is, is that where the majority of the data comes from? It depends on the research. Okay. So Fama and French have used mutual fund data. Um, a lot of research now is using 13F filings for fund flows data to, to look at, at totally different um, aspects of financial markets. Uh, but there's also pretty good research on individual account holders. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's very interesting research. Um, and we can learn a lot about how people make financial decisions, but also what returns do individual investors earn in their right. own accounts. Yeah. And, uh, funny enough, if my understanding is correct and you would have more, uh, experience reading through the papers than I would, but, um, when you look at the individual side, it's kind of funny because from what I've seen, most people know that uh, actively managed mutual funds on average have seen that underperformance over time. When you go down to the investor level, it's actually worse performance than the active mutual funds um, from a lot of papers pointing to that conclusion, basically to the point you kind of touched on, which is um, the behavioral side of it and, and the emotional side of it. Uh, on the research side, when you talk about uh, biases and stuff like that, uh, kind of same question I asked earlier, but... Um, are there any research papers that, that stuck with you on the emotional side in terms of insights into emotional, into investor psychology and, and how that impacts returns or, or what were some takeaways kind of reading about that area? Um, I'm not going to say none, although I think, I think I asked Fama this question too, and I think he said nothing. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> I, 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 hope, I hope that's what he said, but it was, it was something like that. Uh, so w when you look at there's, there's two pieces. There's the mm -hmm. empirical piece, which is what did the data say? What, what has happened in, right. in the past? And everybody agrees on that because it's there. It's in yeah, the data. It's um, the data. <laughs> how, how you explain it, though, that, that there's massive debate about in academia. Mm -hmm. uh, you can explain pretty much any anomaly, either with behavioral uh, stories, theories, mm -hmm. or with risk-based theories. Mm. So the Fama and French uh, five-factor model, three-factor model, whatever, is a, a risk-based model. They, right. they, they take a risk-based perspective, which is basically that there's, there are differences in discount rates, differences in riskiness between stocks, and that's what explains the anomalies mm. that exist. Uh, there's, but there's a whole other field of research in behavioral finance that has, uh, that, that has very good reasons and explanations for why we see the exact same anomalies, but from a behavioral perspective. Right, I understand. Yeah. Now, it's important because if, if they're behavioral anomalies, you aren't necessarily taking more risk by exploiting them. Mm. So from a theoretical standpoint, an investor could say, I'm going to go and earn alpha because I believe the market is, uh, is, is priced with the CAPM, with the capital asset pricing model. Right. And all these anomalies are just behavioral errors of other investors. I'm going to go exploit them. Mm -hmm. It was an important distinction because you don't have to take more risk if you believe that. Right, right. Um, and that's a tough thing with, with academic papers, right, is, is the date... Um, the testing of the hypothesis alone doesn't actually give you the, the answer of, of what's happening. It tells you the results, right? And, and uh, you know, you can tie it to factors and stuff. Uh, kind of a good example of that that, that I saw um, was, and I'm sure you've heard of this, is the phases of the moon paper, which showed basically a, basically a correlation between moon phases and stock market performance, showing that the best time to, to own stocks was during a new moon and the worst time was during a full moon. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, the, the conclusion of the paper talked about how the moon was in fact influencing investors. So it wasn't, you know, this wasn't like a, uh, a paper that was done in, in, you know, the, the researchers think, oh, like, you know, that's just an anomaly. Uh, there was this explanation pr uh, provided or presented saying, yep, investors are affected by, by the phases of the moon. Um, and a lot of people probably would disagree with that and say, you know, that's, not true or <laughs> whatever have you. So that's just an extreme example of the difficulty with, with taking the academic findings and explaining uh, what's actually happening or what's causing those empirical results. And I've always found that interesting with finance because finance is funny where uh, you actually have unlimited potential for research reports <laughs> into the future, right? Every day you get more pricing data and uh, so many 
research reports are just the repeat of old research reports in new timeframes. And yet it's so difficult to draw conclusions <laughs> about, about what you're actually yep. seeing in the space, which I find funny. Um, moving on from kind of uh, the discussion on the research side of things, uh, we kind of touched on it earlier. I would actually be curious uh, what your thoughts are on the different asset classes, specifically with crypto. Um, you know, you mentioned you're not specifically a, uh, let's say a passive investor or, you know, that label. Um, what is, what's your view on, on kind of those asset classes? And do you see any of, of the research reports now talking about crypto? Like, is that something that's coming up frequently in, in the journals that, that you subscribe to? Uh, not super frequently, but it's coming up. It's definitely Slowly coming but surely. up. Right. Yeah. And not, not generally, uh, in a, in a sort of positive light, at okay. least from, <laughs> from what I've read. Right. Uh, we, we actually, so a year ago, or not, not quite in October, 2021, we had professor Campbell Harvey, you know who he is? I'm not familiar. No. Okay. So he's at Duke university. He's, he's a big name in traditional financial economics research. So, um, he, he was a editor of the journal of finance for years, but mm. he's, he's right up there. Uh, like top tier traditional gotcha. finance okay. researcher. Uh, he's done a lot of work on emerging markets, actually. That's uh, that's very interesting research. Uh, anyway, so he, we had him on our podcast October 2021, and we spent half the episode talking about traditional finance, all the research that he's done, and it was great. Right. The second half of the episode, it's a two-hour episode, the longest one we ever, we ever did. Uh, the second half of the episode, we talked about crypto because he had just written a book on DeFi and the future of finance. In, Interesting, in, okay. In, in his view. And f- coming from him, who's right. a, a very respected, right, right. <laughs> we, me and Cameron, my podcast co-host, we kind of looked at each other afterwards and we were like, all right, we've kind of been not, not ignoring, but dismissing crypto for a while. Mm. So after Cam talked about how, how great it was going to be, we, we decided we had to take it seriously. And so this year we launched a, a podcast series actually, um, focused on crypto. So we're interesting. Okay. 11 episodes in now. And we've talked to a whole bunch of experts from, uh, I mean, software, engineering, computer science, law, economics, uh, monetary policy, all, all kinds of these different specialists that have a perspective on crypto. And it hasn't painted a very pretty picture. No kidding. Interesting. And <laughs> how does that how does that stand for the uh, uh, longevity of, of this podcast series? <laughs> well, well, we'll probably have 15 episodes. It was, it, it was never... <laughs> Never intended to be a permanent podcast. We, right. we we just we really genuinely wanted to understand the space. Um, so, what are the main kind of shortfalls that you're or roadblocks? I guess I would describe them that you're seeing from from these interviews. So, if you ask a technologist, uh, like if you ask a, a software developer or a computer scientist, uh, cryptography expert, which we've asked all three of those, mm-hmm. uh, they're not very excited about the technology or what it can do. Right. Um, it did. It it did something kind of cool. So di- digital cash. Sure. Yeah. I mean, of course. Yeah. No. And and there's no harm in saying that. You know, you, something interesting and creative was made for sure. Yeah. But is it good for society? Um, the answer that we've gotten so far is probably not. Mm. Which is probably not surprising, uh, because if you look at where Bitcoin came from, it, it's got deep roots in libertarian ideology. Mm-hmm. I think it comes from a fundamental misconception of what money is and how it functions in a society mm. uh, because it was emulated after gold. Uh, the whole story of gold as the original money uh, mm. or true money or hard money or whatever you want to call it is objectively wrong. So that was popularized by Adam Smith. Um, just the concept of, of money coming from barter, evolving from barter, and then we, we find the, the most saleable commodity, which tends to be gold, and therefore, that's what money is. And the government uh, plays a role of kind of making it easier to exchange gold by stamping it. Then eventually they issue currency. But really, the, the government or the central bank or whoever is just there as a, a, an intermediary uh, between the people and gold, which is true money. Mm-hmm. Now, that story is, is objectively wrong. Um, In what way? It's been disproven anthropologically. Um, if you go back and look at what were the origins of money, there mm-hmm. is zero evidence ever of barter societies. There's interesting. Yeah. So the, the origin of money is not barter. Um, and the origin of money is definitely not gold. Uh, yeah. So all that, it was quite literally fabricated by Adam Smith. So what would have been the functioning means of, of exchange if, if not barter credit money is a social relationship. Mm. 
Um, yeah, so I mean, that's it. Money is, money is credit and always has been credit. The idea that money is a thing, a commodity, is a misconception. Mm-hmm. And modeling in software, something that is designed to behave like that, I think, like I said earlier, is a fundamental misunderstanding of what money is and how it functions within a society. Now, that's Bitcoin, but its roots are this libertarian ideal, um, and anti-regulation, anti-government and I think it's pretty hard to separate what has stemmed from it from that. Mm. Uh, we mm. did just talk to somebody on our podcast who we're trying to be balanced. Like we're not sure. Like at, at the end of the end, I've kind of said this too, is, is you don't want to be blindsided by the success of something. Right. And, and you're only like what you or what I think isn't very likely going to change the outcome of what will happen with cryptocurrency. So you don't want to be, you know, pouting on the sidelines the whole, <laughs> the whole yeah. time something's succeeding, but, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, but you were saying about this. So we, we we came to this thing with an open mind, and and we're we, we had we haven't released this episode yet, but I think it's coming out uh, well next week, as of when you and I are recording this. Right. Uh, so we had somebody who's a, a proponent of of crypto, but he's a researcher. Uh, like he comes from, he's got a PhD from the University of Toronto. Uh, he spent time all over the world researching, focused on cryptography, technology, and cryptocurrencies mm. for the last ten years. He's focused on cryptocurrencies. He made the argument that he, he thinks that we, at this point, can detach what has developed into Web3 and DeFi and all that kind of stuff from the, the libertarian roots of Bitcoin. Mm. I don't know what I think about that yet. It's hard because it's, it's designed as a technology to remove intermediaries. Mm-hmm. Intermediaries so, serve a lot of important functions, um, particularly regulatory ones, but Especially also... Especially within financial functions, yeah. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. Just just KYC and AML. Um, and so now we have exchanges, crypto exchanges that that are new intermediaries. But now we're back to square one. Right. Like, what are we actually accomplishing? We, have, we now have a lightly regulated market where people are getting scammed and losing their savings in a lot of cases. What what got better? Yeah. What I've seen a lot of people find out is is in trying to build this uh, self-governing system, um, they realize people have found the shortcomings of it. And that's why DeFi relies on these uh, central exchanges and, and stuff is, is to fill those gaps that are very difficult. Because the thing you have to remember with, with DeFi is, is this is code that's being produced, packaged up, and then sent into the world. And yes, there are ways to update it after the fact. Uh, but over time, we've seen that there are a lot of you know vulnerabilities. Uh, there are issues that come up and, and exploitations and just stuff that some people are happy to um, change the way they do things to accommodate for those. A lot of people aren't. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of people probably aren't willing to uh, learn this new ecosystem to do the same thing that they can generally do um, through traditional finance. And it's not to say, and and where I kind of keep an open mind is with emerging markets and, and areas. You know, I actually. There was a, an article I had a journalist reach out about Afghanistan and how um, there's kind of this youth movement to, to bring crypto to Afghanistan with the, with the Taliban kind of clamping down on traditional financial systems and uh, preventing the use of foreign currencies and stuff within there. Um, so there are kind of, you know, these unique use cases for these things. Um, when you talk about DeFi and stuff, the, the problem is, is the opportunity there to to benefit as a holder of, of these things you know when you talk about just holding bitcoin like you know talking about how great it will be used by other people but just owning it yourself as an investment uh there are limitations there podcast episode that we released today was with uh professor hillary allen she's a law professor at a, a american university but her area of specialization is financial regulation mm. uh, and she's written a ton about crypto and DeFi, and one of her comments that stuck with me was that we've seen crypto be very good at pointing out what is wrong with the existing financial system Mm. and that's kind of good sure of course yeah uh but her other point is that crypto doesn't solve any of those problems right it it actually (laughs) it actually makes them worse right uh that's a good point because you know when you touch on regulation for example there, there are plenty of problems with regulation and in fact when you talk about um transaction fees when you talk about uh, the say paperwork or the burdens of let's say foreign exchange, um, or, or even just sending money to, to a relative, for example, uh, one of the reason that's expensive is the regulation is, is you mentioned KYC. So that's know your client, uh, which is just kind of requirements from professionals to, to know 
who you are and why you're sending money, they don't care, but they're required by regulation because obviously if you don't have that sort of functionality, you're going to have a lot of money laundering. You're going to have a lot of issues. So that actually imposes a cost. It's not to say that banks aren't profitable. It's not to say that they don't make money from doing this business, but it is to say that one of the reasons things are slower, things have costs. Uh, it's not free to send money around is because of these regulations. So it's great to say, well, those, that's a problem. You know, transactions are slow because there's regulation. But is the solution no regulation, right. such as with DeFi? Right. So, so this, that's a great explanation is, of it. Yeah. What does crypto actually do well? It, it provides the opportunity for regulatory arbitrage. Mm. Whether that is a good thing or not is a very philosophical question. Uh, I think the answer is probably no, unless we come back to the, the libertarian roots of Bitcoin, where all, all regulation and government intervention, other than protecting private property, is a bad thing. Mm. And that goes back to John Locke's political philosophy. Right. Uh, but anyway, uh, for the average person living in the world that we have developed over years of developing laws and regulations and all that stuff, is eliminating regulations with technology just because we have a technology that can do that a good thing? I would generally say no. Um, we had Bruce Schneier, who's a, a very big name in the cryptography world. Super excited to get him on our podcast, actually. But he said something that also stuck with me. He said that uh, technology does not solve political and economic problems. It just doesn't. Right, right. And trying to do that with crypto is uh, it's it's something that will eventually fail, because even if you go into a country, say the Afghanistan example, mm -hmm. um, if if there's a movement to start using crypto there, the Taliban will crack down on it. Yeah. And that can be done at the physical level. They can yeah. physically even stop you. Even if they you. can't. And and that's a good point. Is is a lot of people, you know, they assume well, and and there is there's technical truth in that, you know, Taliban can't take your Bitcoin. But can they raid your house? <laughs> you know, absolutely. And and that, that's a good point. Is is uh, and there's it's funny that you mentioned that because it's almost that um, the countries, say in Canada, the United States, where cryptocurrency is, I don't want to say less effective, but let's say there's less de uh, fundamental demand for that DeFi network. Just as an example, I know that doesn't necessarily apply to Bitcoin, but if you take DeFi functions and you say uh, cryptocurrency, obviously, DeFi functions aren't as needed in the US and Canada because things are well regulated. Generally speaking, private property is protected. You know, you have these, uh, a stable government, more or less. Um, and yet, uh, that's, uh, so it's not as needed. And when you go to the countries where that stuff would be more valuable, it's actually less protected from those, uh, from those threats, if you will, from unstable government and things. Uh, but it's funny because the, the, uh, advocates in North America are the ones who are, are strongest, you know, beating the drum saying that we need this when really it's, we have the best market to not have it right. Is, is this market where you have these protections and things like that. Um, I have this one professor who, uh, it always kind of stuck with me is he called it the engineering problem. I don't know if that's actually like a technical term for it. Um, but the idea of, of being able to make something incredible and beautiful from an engineering perspective and uh, I think it was kind of in reference to Silicon Valley uh, and having it flop because the engineers didn't actually solve a problem. They made something beautiful. They made something technically sound and perfect. Uh, and the end user didn't care about it because the average person doesn't put a lot of thought into the philosophy of libertarianism. And, and it's not to say that those discussions aren't important, um, but it's to say that at the end of the day, people care about convenience. People care about, you know, the safety of their of their things those probably trump the technicality of how the thing is working again I, I i try to keep an open mind in the sense of um we might see interesting stuff develop and we might we might see more useful stuff develop right as, as you don't want to turn a blind eye to that stuff um my, my criticisms have largely been in the promotion of it as an investment class um namely in terms of you know you could argue about investing in general but in terms of obviously, you know, you have the people who claim very large returns and all oh, this will revolutionize money, like you kind of touched on. And we haven't had much evidence that that is the tra trajectory. No. no. So you, you asked earlier about uh, good uh, financial economics research in crypto. One of the papers that I really enjoyed, and we had him, it was the second episode of our crypto podcast, um, a guy named Igor Makarov. He did a paper called uh, Blockchain Analysis of the Bitcoin Market where they built algorithms and got uh, other 
blockchain analysis service providers to help them uh, look at what is actually going on in the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm. Who's involved? How many people own most of the coins? It's very few people own most of the coins, which right, is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that, that I found really interesting from his paper is what are people actually using Bitcoin for? And the single largest use is speculation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that lines up with another paper that the data is a little bit older. Uh, Igor's paper was pretty new. Uh, but there was another paper that used, uh, I believe it was German data from a bank uh, where they, they looked at people who ultimately ended up investing in crypto. But the interesting, the interesting thing is that they had data about their investment accounts before they invested in crypto and then for a brief time afterwards. Mm. So they were able to look at what were the characteristics of crypto investors before they invested in crypto. In other words, what were they investing in uh, prior to investing in crypto? And this is a, a paper by a guy named Tobin Hanspal and some uh, co-authors. And they basically found that crypto investors were the type of investor that was previously investing in highly speculative stuff. They were turning their mm. accounts over often. They were investing in lottery-like stocks. That's mm. like, uh, tends to be small cap growth stocks with low profitability. Right. Um, but they've, they've got lottery-like distributions. Right. Um, now, what's interesting is that we talked about asset pricing models earlier. You can't apply an asset pricing model to crypto because it doesn't have firm characteristics. Right. But... Uh, there, there's a concept called demand system pricing. It's like, what can we learn about who's investing in, in assets? And mm. I think from that perspective, uh, if the same type of investors that are investing in highly speculative stocks are also investing in crypto, it might indicate that the behavior of crypto as an investment will be similar to those types of stocks. Mm-hmm. So between those two papers, um, it, it seems like it might be reasonable to think that crypto is going to behave like any uh, lottery style stock. Or, yeah. yeah. And it happens in, in, in what seem to be revolutionary technologies. I think we saw this with the ARC funds too. Everyone gets right. really excited about stuff and you end up with a whole bunch of small stocks with high, ridiculously high prices that do right. very well for a while. You win the lottery for mm-hmm. a bit, but it mm-hmm. doesn't tend to last. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, people are calling it the crypto winter right now. Only time will tell how things recover over time, but certainly, you know, electric, you mentioned arc electric vehicles is an area there. And, uh, you know, we have Tesla doing well right now. Uh, but you have to remember all the startups that were in the EV space, uh, you know, before Tesla kind of, uh, be, well, Tesla was always kind of dominant in that space for the past few years, but, uh, all to say that when you have these technologies, you always have a lot of duds that show up <laughs> and uh, make it risky in terms of a, a broad allocation to the space. Uh, so I, I can gather that you you probably aren't including crypto as a as an asset class in <laughs> your allocations. No, no, we're not. Not yet. <laughs> we, you know, there, there's a there's a firm that I respect a lot that did um, that did that um, about a year ago, I guess. And uh, I mean, it must be hard now telling like, how do you have mm-hmm. that conversation with your, with your clients? Uh, we talked briefly just now about the technological revolution type investments mm-hmm. in general. And this relates back to the research on uh, the relationship between economic growth and stock returns in general, investing in a revolu- revolutionary technology is a really bad idea. Mm. You tend to get really, really poor returns. Uh, and I think, I think it, at least in terms of a mental model, it's probably safe to think about crypto like that. Even if it's not going to be realized as a revolution, we may not look back on it and say this was revolutionary. But even if we are going to look back on it even and say that... Even if we do have something stick. Yeah, I see it's, what it's, saying, it's, yeah. not, it's not a good investment. Right. Uh, so yeah, lot, lots of reasons that I wouldn't touch it. That, that, and again, it's, it's, I feel like it's a cliche for my channel at this point to bring up the dot-com bubble, but it's just such a good example of, of that perfect thing where you know the internet was revolutionary. It didn't mean an investment in the average internet. In fact, an investment in the average internet company would have done you very poorly. Uh, If you were to hold a basket of internet stocks through the dot-com bubble, boom and bust, uh, you would have probably lost a sizable amount of money Yep. uh, because it was a terrible investment as an asset class for for, a sector, if you will, for some time. Um, We're kind of getting to the the end of the podcast time I have allocated anyway. I don't want to keep you too, too late on on a Friday afternoon. Um, but I figured we could end, obviously, uh, you've mentioned kind of a few sources that you use. Um, I like to ask, uh, guests any tips they have for people trying to learn about investing and, and, uh, given kind of the research you do, I figured, uh, we could end on, uh, if you have any 
resources you could offer for, or, or maybe even just what you like to browse when, when you're reading research reports, what are the sources you like to refer to? Um, and then any tips for someone who, let's say, wants to be the next Ben Felix, who head of research at <laughs> maybe maybe not that specific role, but someone who who wants to uh, see more of the academic side of, of investing, see these research reports. Uh, do you have any tips in terms of uh, increasing your exposure there, increasing your education, and uh, even maybe entering the workforce in that area? Yeah. So the the top journals in financial economics are the Journal of Finance and the Journal of Financial Economics. Mm. You probably don't want to read them. They're like super technical. Um, well, it's just blatant research reports, right? It's, <laughs> so. it's like hardcore yeah. research. Um, like these are guys that are, you know, they, they, they could have been um, aerospace engineers, but they went into right. finance. Or they I, I can advocate for that because I, I had a subscription for some time and... and <laughs> I don't currently have a subscription. Uh, I, I like to poke and, and I look through some of the free offerings sometimes. Yeah, so that, that's, yeah. So those journals are the top journals. Uh, I subscribe to the Journal of Portfolio Management, which is not a top journal. I don't think it even ranks um, from, from that perspective of like journal quality Science. rankings. Yeah, it's yeah, it's terrible, saying, yeah. but it's a practitioner journal. I, I think it's great uh, in terms of relevance. It's all paywalled though, which is unfortunate. Um, and the subscription is actually kind of expensive. Mm. But the good news is all three of those journals uh, typically the authors will post the final draft version of their paper on a website called SSRN, mm -hmm. which is free for anybody to access. Right. Yeah. So it'll usually say if it's a published paper, it'll say forthcoming in whatever journal. Right. Um, I, I try to focus on peer reviewed journals. Like if it's, if it's been published, you, right, you're, right. you can be more sure that it's good research. Right. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll let that slide a little bit. If it's from Fama and French, for example, mm. I'll, I'll generally believe that it's probably fine. Right. Uh, but still, I always prefer uh, peer-reviewed research. So SSRN is great to, to do portfolio analysis uh, with like factor models and the stuff that we talked about. There's a website called Portfolio Visualizer. Right, yep. Yeah, great tool. free tool. It's, it's really quick to run a five-factor regression, which is a type of analysis that lets you see how much of a portfolio's return is explained by exposure to the different risks right. that we talked about briefly earlier. Mm -hmm. So I find that to be a useful tool. Um, yeah, those are the two big ones in terms of free tools for research. Yeah, I might be mixing up my tools here, but, uh, that's one that, uh, I've used a lot. Um, and actually at my company, we, we use it sometimes, uh, again, I might be mixing up the tools, but with, um, for clients who hold multiple mutual funds, one thing I like is it will show you the overlap of, of, because you know, there's, it's false diversification. Uh, you know, there's some papers on that as well where, uh, a lot of people get this sense of calm or, or you know, sense of, assur of assurance when they hold multiple mutual funds, even though at the end of the day, they tend to have like a ridiculous amount of overlap, say like 75% overlap in terms of the actual positions that are held. Uh, so this, that tool, again, uh, pretty certain that it, it shows you the, the correlate or the overlap of the actual positions. Yeah, yeah that sounds, the different that positions, sounds like so. the, the same tool. Um, and kind of a, a, I don't want to call it a hack, but uh, something with research reports, if there is a pay gated research report from a, uh, a journal, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I know this applies in many science journals and I'm not, I'm not sure if it apply in the finance space, but I, I do know that it's always worth reaching out to the researchers, uh, because most of them don't actually get paid for the pay gated, uh, research reports. So if you see a research report that you want to read and it's pay gated, you can always try reaching out to the actual original researchers who their contact information should be there um, and just ask if they're willing to, to share it with you because they have the rights to do that. And, and most of them are by far very happy to, to share their, their work with you because this is, uh, you know, in some cases their life work that they're just happy to, to have people see uh, because they, you know, they themselves aren't being compensated from a lot of these journals. Um, you could have your own whole <laughs> discussion about that space. But uh, anyway, Ben, thank you for uh, for sitting down and having this conversation. Really interesting. Uh, I love that uh, uh, the number of research reports you can just pull from the top of your head. That's a remarkable skill that <laughs> I don't yet have, uh, possibly because I canceled that subscription <laughs> some time ago. But um, thank you for, for joining on the, uh, on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And glad we could do this. It was kind of a long time coming. Uh, really the only, I don't want to say the only finance creators, but the only two kind of bigger finance channels in the Ottawa area, it's, it's kind of silly that it's taken this long to <laughs> meet it. Even, even our first collaboration, we didn't actually film that in person. We no. just shot separately and sent it to each other and collaborated yeah. online. We met talked up, about it in person. Met right? up for coffee. Yeah. Met up for coffee, talked about it, but then 
everything was was done virtually and funny enough during the pandemic and now we'll meet up and, <laughs> and do it in person but um if you want to see more of, of ben felix's content you can find him on youtube under ben felix uh, that's his youtube channel common sense investing also the rational reminder podcast i would assume available on any any of your podcasting yeah it's on websites. youtube too on youtube as well right yeah. right yeah they have uh, you have your own separate channel for, for yeah separate channel yeah um anything else you'd like to shout out in terms of socials or anything like that no i mean real quick we talked a lot about investing and financial economics and portfolio management, all that kind of stuff. The other area that I've spent a lot of time researching over the last couple of years is mm-hmm. happiness and well-being and how that relates to yeah, money. Yeah, you've posted a lot of videos about that lately, actually. And, and uh, I saw your car one not too yeah. long ago, luxury cars. So uh, great content for research reports. But also, yeah, you've been covering some lifestyle stuff in terms of how money relates to well-being and, yeah. and, and aspects like that. And I think that's super important. Yeah, like it's, of course. It's, it's fun to talk about all the stuff that we just talked about, but it doesn't let you necessarily live a good life. Yeah, well, and, and that's the thing, right? Is is at the end of the day, money's and investing is really just a tool for you know your end goal isn't to make a lot of money. Your end goal is to be happy, and, and right. generally, people see, well, how do I get their financial security and stuff like that? So, yeah, great source for all kinds of videos, jam-packed of research reports. I mean, it, it's literally in your job title, so <laughs> it works out. Uh, but yeah, thanks for joining us for another podcast episode. Uh, if you have any thoughts you'd like to share or if you like the episode, please do let us know in the comments down below. And yeah, we'll see you in the next one. Until then, uh, cheers and check out Ben's channel. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Bye, guys. A final thanks to Noah for sponsoring this episode and your final reminder to use code BAGEL for a seven-day free trial and 37% off the annual subscription fee. Thanks for watching.